Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. I'm here with Dr. Ruben Adalian. He is the director of the Armenian National Institute and a specialist on the Caucasus and the Middle East. In 1993, Dr. Adalian completed a project to document the Armenian genocide in the United States National Archives. Now, you can check out the work that he's done and a lot of associated information at the Armenian National Institute website, which is armenian-genocide.org. We'll put the links to that below. Dr. Adalian, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for inviting me. The first genocide of the 20th century, the Armenian genocide, 1.5 million people slaughtered in ways that stagger the imagination, I would believe, of even the most sadistic minds still remains a controversy in many areas. Uh, America and, and Israel and other people still seem to find it geopolitically advantageous to stage denials of this genocide. I wonder if you could give people some background, because I guess for most people, Ottoman is a little square table in their living room. But when it was, of course, at the height of its power as an empire in the 16th century, was uh, very dominant. And out of the Ottoman Empire came, uh, of course, this the CUP and, and the genocide and so on. I wonder if you could give people a little bit of a background of the tensions between the Christians and the Ottomans, the Muslims, uh, and how it ended up playing out. Well, as you point out, in, in the uh, 16th, 17th century, the Ottoman Empire uh, is a world power. It dominates the Balkans, the Middle East, uh, right down into uh, North Africa. Uh, by the early 20th century, it's a much shrunken state, uh, still uh, a very large state on uh, the entire Middle East as we know it today. It's still part of the Balkans, uh, were part of, of the empire. But this is an empire that is ruled by Turks, and, and the Turks were Muslims. And uh, by their customs and traditions and form of, of government, the, the dominant group uh, naturally uh, disenfranchised uh, the other uh, religious minorities, the Christians and the Jews, were second-class citizens, and uh, their rights were severely uh, limited throughout most of the existence of the Ottoman Empire. For, in, for instance, uh, the Christians and Jews could not give testimony in court, uh, which really... Uh, uh, you know, stacked uh, justice or injustice against you. Uh, there was no way for anybody uh, to win a case. Uh, and sorry, I just wanted to mention as well, I mean, in conformity with some Muslim doctrines, they were required to pay special taxes. And as you point out, were not subject to the protection of the state in any meaningful way when it came to persons and property. Well, quite right. And uh, when, when the justice system is rigged against you, there's really the standard protections that a citizen enjoys in this case were entirely absent. And as you point out, additional taxes were imposed, uh, additional requirements. Uh, there, there were uh, second-class citizens. They were free to practice their religion, but that was about the extent of, 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 their, uh, of, their, of their freedoms. Uh, otherwise, they uh, were effectively reduced to being economic actors uh, and not, not much more. Obviously, they did not serve in the military. Uh, that was reserved for, uh, for the Muslim population. All of the government was reserved not just to the Muslim, but effectively to the Turkish element. Uh, so it's an empire with a very, very, very strict hierarchical order. And, and the Christians and the Jews are at the, at the bottom of this, of this hierarchy. There are other Islamic populations in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Arabs are there, certain Persians, Caucasians, and so forth and so on. But the but this was a when a great power, it was a more tolerant regime, great state, great statesman, uh, uh, larger economy. By the early early twentieth century, it's under great strain. Uh, 
the Russian Empire is expanding, the Balkan uh, nationalities are liberating themselves from, from Ottoman rule. And so the attitude of the government towards the Christian and uh, other minorities uh, takes on a whole different dimension and increasingly becomes very racist. Uh, and begins to categorize specifically the Armenians, the Greeks, the Assyrians, uh, the, the, the larger Christian the Christian groups uh, as uh, enemies within the state, even though they'd been thoroughly integrated and they were all conquered peoples that had never uh, resisted Ottoman rule. However, uh, they are as well influenced by nationalist concepts that's spreading around the world and uh, aspired for uh, the emancipation uh, that uh, was uh, the concepts of emancipation spreading around the world. They wanted to participate in the, in, the, in government. Uh, they aspired for equal rights. And at the end of the day, all of that was denied to them. The genocide was effectively, as has been made the, uh, the case uh, over and over again, uh, the, the uh, brutal answer to the Armenian question. Question being, what happens to a minority within an empire? How How... Do they gain equality with an empire that refuses to extend it to them? Right, right. Now, even despite the legal stack, legal system being stacked against them and excessive taxation, the Armenians were relatively prosperous, a relatively prosperous minority, which always attend, well, often tends to provoke tensions in a sort of multicultural mosaic of an empire that never quite got the memo that diversity is always a strength. And so I think that resentment was part of it as well. But I think a lot of people aren't clear on just how rooted in Christianity the Armenian population was. If I remember rightly, this is the population that was the largest population to first convert to Christianity to to make it a central part of their identity. So this was a religious conflict uh, uh, in many ways, of course, because uh, the CUP, who is alleged to have uh, initiated this, this massacre, this genocide, you know, you weren't, you weren't in the early days, you couldn't even join if you weren't a Muslim. It's a political movement of Ottoman Muslims for, uh, of Ottoman Muslims for Ottoman Muslims. And so that seems to be downplayed a little bit with some of the religious tensions that seemed to be driving uh, this, uh, this conflict. Uh, you covered a lot of ground. First, you're absolutely right. The Armenians are the oldest Christian nation on the face of the earth. Uh, they, uh, they, their king adopted Christianity back in 301, and the church has played a very central role in their existence. When we talk uh, about the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, they're, they're a minority at that point, but they have a 3,000-year history with thousands of, year of years of existence as an independent uh, country. Uh, but we're, in the era that we're talking, they are a conquered people, so the equation uh, takes on a different uh, character, as, as you well point out. In terms of uh, the uh, the wealth of the Armenians, and that's it's just a poor point uh, to raise when discussing genocide, because to, not only does it involve the destruction of a population, the demographic destruction, but as well as their economic destruction. And uh, you're right again in pointing out that the, the Armenians had accumulated a great deal of wealth. However, uh, that's a that's an overbroad or an overgeneralization to the extent that. Most of the Armenian population was actually living in the countryside. Most of them were ordinary farmers, ordinary businessmen. The, the wealth was concentrated in, the, in, in a few of the major cities, uh, primarily the capital city of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople. And as for the CUP, as, as, as you referred to it, to the Committee of Union and Progress uh, created by uh, the nationalist or ultra-nationalist Turkish element that ultimately uh, took over the Ottoman government, in uh, uh, the first decade of the uh, 20th century, uh, 
ultimately their motto became Turkey for the Turks and effectively for the Turks alone, uh, excluding anybody else. And that exclusion didn't uh, take form in terms of expulsion and, and, and exile. It literally involved extermination in the case of the Armenians at the very least and some of the Greeks and some of the Assyrians. Right, right. Now, the history of, of sort of the political machinations that led up to the initiation uh, of this genocide is complex uh, and and detailed. But it seems to me that once the Turks decided to go into uh, the, the First World War uh, and, and decided to align themselves with the Germans uh, and, and so on against the Russians and, and the British, uh, there was a cover for the initiation of this kind of murderous intent. Uh, because people say, oh, well, in the desperation of the war and so on, but uh, this uh, doesn't really follow the chronology, right? The main thrust of the genocide was uh, was started in the first year of the war, and this was years ahead of any of the imminent collapse that occurred near the end of the war. So when the government gets its martial and, and information control powers during wartime, it seems like a good time undercover of of the darkness of and confusion of war to begin this kind of uh, of horror and um that the war was not responsible for it but was a cover for it seems to me a reasonable way to approach the initiation of this uh, attack that's a critically important point that you make the and uh, it is overlooked uh, and you're absolutely correct that the armenian genocide occurred at the time where the ottoman empire or the or the cup government the committee of union and progress was at its strongest. It happens at the start of the war and not towards the end of the war. The empire is not collapsing at that at that point. In fact, it's doing uh, very well in resisting uh, the, uh, the, uh, the fronts, uh, the, whether against the uh, Allied landing at Gallipoli uh, or uh, the, uh, the Russian front, uh, as you point out. Uh, but, uh, but the cover of war, uh, it, it isn't simply a matter of doing things uh, um, because of the distraction of the war, but it, because war itself empowers government to do things to its own citizens. Uh, martial law effectively means there's an unlimited amount of uh, uh, police power that the state can, can exercise, and nobody, uh, not even its domestic citizenry, is going to be questioning it. And, of course, the, the argument of uh, security and security along the borders becomes one uh, that can't be argued against either. Uh, one of the debates that went on in the, uh, in the German state, in the German government, when the atrocities began to occur was uh, Germany is going to be implicated if it did not intercede and do something about this population. And the argument back was, we're at war and, and Turkey is our ally. How can we in, interfere with their domestic affair? Uh, and, and this has been uh, uh, a recurrent argument that genocide is a domestic crime, is a domestic affair, and, and so international um, uh, intervention uh, typically is uh, complicated and impeded on account of that argument. Right, right. Now, the initiation of this, I thought, was um, very, very instructive. Um, there were, of course, a, a night of raids where the leaders of the Armenian uh, groups were, were arrested, about 200 of them. But in general, the Armenian soldiers soldiers had been pulled into the Ottoman forces. They were disarmed or, or they were worked to death in labor battalions, or they were just at, outright executed. And so you eliminate the leaders, you eliminate the able-bodied men in the Ar Armenian population. And it seems then that to proceed 
with this murderous intent is astonishingly easy. Again, once the the male population and the leaders are disarmed or, or executed or imprisoned, then it seems like the dominoes fall relatively quickly and with little opposition. You're you're raising the the issue of how genocide is structured. The, the popular impression is it's just mayhem, mass murder, uh, a group of people attacking and, and slaughtering another population. The fact that it matters, genocide is a state crime. It is organized by the state, requires the instruments, the administration of the state and all of the arms and equipment and the manpower that a state has in order to implement something that's so broad and so comprehensive. It's not easy to identify a specific minority population across a vast geography. And so there's a method to the madness, and it's very systematic and it's very effective, and it's been done over and over again. And the two points that you're uh, uh, raising here is, is what happens to leadership and what happens to manpower. Any genocide typically starts Uh, by arresting uh, the uh, men and women uh, that are the spokesmen of a community. Uh, It's effectively removing the head, removing uh, the leadership, removing the the capacity in a community to respond to. And without that capacity to respond, then there's no capacity for resistance. Uh, The same with the men. They are inducted into the army. It's wartime. They're They're out there serving their state. They're doing their obligation, meeting their obligation, while the their government is entertaining a very different plan, which is their own demise. Uh, it's they are isolated from their community. They are they're in army barracks or they're in the front, and so they're again they can be pulled away, and as you point out, uh, slaughtered on mass. So the Armenian genocide, although it's you know, dated, uh, it start as dated traditionally or as commemorated on April twenty fourth. Uh, and it's the year 1915. It all started months and months earlier, uh, where the where the not only the planning but the actual uh, removal of the leadership, the actual removal of the men, uh, the able-bodied men from that community had occurred. So when the deportation started in April, it's easy to remove a million, two million people from their communities because it's mostly uh, women, children, and older men. Uh, and they're going to put up the least amount of resistance uh, during the deportations. And effectively, the big surprise uh, during the Armenian genocide is that there even was uh, uh, instances of uh, uh, resistance, but they were very isolated and uh, they did not last very long. Right. Uh, within a very short time, the million and a half Armenians who perished during during the genocide, most of them perished their first few months of uh, uh, of the deportations, uh, 1915, 1916. Better than half the Armenian population is al- is already dead. Right, and of course, uh, they were told, as were the Jews uh, in Germany, they were told that they were being resettled. You know, the one of the ways, of course, if you told that you're being marched to your death, then you're going to probably get, grab whatever you can, a saucepan or a rolling pin and try and fight for your freedom. But of course, you're worn away in increments. So you're told, well, we're going to resettle you. There's something wonderful at the end of all of this. It's just you're not geographically convenient to us and so on. And it's only then, of course, when you're in the death marches, when you're in the desert, when you have no food and water and you're terminally weakened that you probably realize the truth but it's you're so remote you have no no even handy weaponry and you're exhausted and and worn down by lack of food and water at that point i mean really all you can do is curl up and die and this kind of incrementalism uh, is something that we see over and over again in these kinds of uh, mass murders because 
if if a population becomes aware of the true intentions of a government, they would resist. Why would anybody volunteer to be deported? Why why would they obey uh, uh, these kinds of commands? And and so governments have to engage. Governments that intend to destroy a population have to engage in deception. Uh, uh, they have to uh, cover up the crimes from the very get go, effectively. And, and so, as you point out. Uh, do it in stages uh, do uh, and, and entrap the population. And once they're removed from their homes and they're out in the open, they're, they're just much easier victims, uh, whether it's to starve them or to uh, to murder them, uh, you know, in, in, in open ground. There's there's no way for them to protect themselves. And, and again, it's uh, geography uh, serves the purposes of the state here by driving them into the desert. The government doesn't even have to recruit all that many uh, murderers. After all, it still takes uh, other men to kill. Uh, they don't need huge contingents of, uh, of these uh, murderers to be uh, uh, organized uh, in these butcher battalions, as they used to be called. Instead, uh, nature will do its damage by starving them and, and dehydrating them. And again, very large numbers simply died from exhaustion and, de- and then starvation. And of course, when they were herded into the camps, uh, already weakened by by hunger and and thirst, you have the usual uh, progression of virulent diseases that go through and wipe out the weakened sections of the population. Uh, nature and and viruses and bacteria can do a lot of the dirty work and reduce the need for the murderous manpower required for this kind of extermination. Quite so. Uh, the term concentration camps uh, often is is a mislabel when when there's no health care being provided to a population that's been concentrated. Uh, very quickly, epidemics begin to wipe out uh, wipe out of people. And again, by design, while there may have been called concentration centers, they're actually death camps. Uh, this is this is where people are herded in order to perish again more more quickly. Uh, there were quite a number of these uh, camps uh, along the Euphrates, ironically. Uh, there's the river flowing and, and people can't get to it uh, to get a drink of water, uh, which, you know, again, reveals uh, the uh, the brutality of the regime and, and what they really had in mind. All right. And it is, again, something that is astonishing when this amount of resources and, and manpower is devoted to the extermination of a significant portion of the domestic population during a time of wartime. Because, I mean, the, the, the Turks, uh, the Muslims, were, were experiencing heavy losses, particularly, uh, if I remember rightly, on the Eastern Front, at the same time that they're taking war resources and using it to exterminate parts of the domestic population, which would go against the aims of trying to succeed in a war. It's part of the irrational hatred that seems to have manifested uh, in this situation. Genocide is, itself is a form of warfare, uh, but it's a form of warfare of armed men against an un- unarmed population. Uh, and uh, it doesn't necessarily require a huge amount of manpower, but it does take resources away and certainly uh, 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 requires the attention of the uh, people implementing uh, this, this policy. Uh, from the very first day, the, the interior minister by the name of Talat, Talat Bey, who was the architect of the genocide, very likely, along with, with many others, uh, critical leaders of the Committee of Union and Progress, daily. Daily paid attention to what was going on and supervised the deportations. wanted wanted to have reports uh, sent in as to how many were uh, sent out, how many were reaching their uh, their destination. And obviously, all of this uh, language uh, it hides 
in 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 their communications what what in reality is going on because there's a big difference between the numbers deported and the numbers arriving, uh, and that tells him that his policy is being implemented or it's not being implemented as brutally or as thoroughly as he wanted. And in fact, where the numbers are too high at a destination point, he makes uh, he he raises objections as to why uh, the process had not been more effective. It's remarkable the kind of language that's that's created, the euphemisms uh, that are manufactured by uh, these kinds of uh, mass murderers who who um, take over a, a state apparatus and and instruct it to commit crimes. Right. Was the attacks that were generated and and sustained by the state were was it against? Uh, Christians alone, because of course, when you think about the Nazis, yes, they were attacking the Jews, but they're also intellectuals and homosexuals and people who had mentally uh, who were mentally handicapped and so on. Was it against Armenian Christians almost exclusively, or was it against non-Muslims, or was there a, a, a sort of drive to create uh, an ideological pure state, uh, and anybody who wasn't part of that ideology was expendable. Uh, to what degree was it focused on non-Muslims or Armenian Christians in particular? The genocide obviously was focused on, on the Armenians in the main, uh, the Christians uh, in general, but it needs to be pointed out that any radical regime starts out by eliminating its political opposition. And the Committee of Union and Progress did the same thing that the Bolsheviks did and the Nazis did and any other uh, extremist regime that is by eliminating uh, liberal-minded Turks from the government, liberal-minded Ottomans, and that simply didn't mean uh, putting them out of the government. Uh, it also involved assassination, liberal journalists and others, uh, Turks, that's to say Muslims. And it's, it's only when there's no longer that kind of resistance within the government, political objection from liberal elements that a radical regime is, is then free to proceed with even more extreme uh, policies, such as such as genocide. Now, in the in 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 the case of this phenomenon of of uh, removing Christians, uh, it was broadly implemented. Uh, it did uh, catch in its net uh, the Syrian population that happened to live very in areas very proximate to the uh, to the Armenians, even though they were not necessarily at the start of the process a specific target, but nonetheless local. Uh, representatives of the government, of specifically the CUP, who were some of the most violent of the, of the uh, government officials who implemented uh, the genocide, uh, they, they didn't make a distinction between Armenians and Assyrians and Chaldeans and others and just swept the, that entire population uh, along with the Armenians. It was an opportunity to do as much damage. And of course, uh, with local officials, the incentive of plunder is immense. And as you point out, these are ancient communities. They've got some some certain amount of wealth accumulated. And overnight, uh, of course, this wealth is transferred to those who are, who are ready to uh, to plunder them. So eventually, the, the process expanded to the point where uh, uh, the Greeks got caught in the net as well. And the Greeks of Anatolia eventually... Uh, were expelled and large numbers of them killed. So that by 1923, when the Ottoman Empire is at an end and the Republic of Turkey, the modern republic, is created, the Anatolian land from the Aegean to the Caucasus is completely free of uh, Christians. They're, they're no longer there, even though they were the original indigenous population, Greeks, the Assyrians, the Armenians. And instead, it's 99% Turkish and Islamic. 
Right. Um, ethnic cleansing. Now, there is, of course, some controversy, um, not not particularly in my mind, but certainly in, in the minds of others. There's a controversy. I've actually, and you, I'm sure you have as well, seen this genocide referred to as a tragedy, which to me is is a terrible word and a highly insulting word, a word to the 1.5 million who were butchered. A tragedy implies no moral will. A tragedy implies no ill intent. To me, a tragedy is, oh, I got an illness which I did nothing to cause, or a tree fell on me in the forest. You know, I mean, that that is a tragedy. Uh, and I've seen it referred to as, as a, a wide variety of other terms. The term genocide is hotly contested by some. I wonder if we could step through the definition uh, of genocide, as is generally accepted, uh, and, and how it applies in this situation. Because there's a convention, there's a United Nations Convention on on the uh, Prevention and Commission of uh, of Genocides. So the term has legal meaning, and it is therein that the arguments arise. The convention was adopted in 1948. Uh, the Armenian Genocide is committed in 1915. It's a it's a sort of a silly argument. Uh, the, the the crime did not need to have a name for, for it not to have been. Uh, a, a, a genocide. Uh, and again, the argument whether the convention itself applies, the convention would, would not necessarily apply, but its meaning certainly applies, uh, and its consequences uh, should apply as well. Otherwise, you, you know, there, there's here a crime committed against an entire population for which there's no international uh, jurisdiction, there's no international forum, there's no international mechanism to address what happened to this population. Uh, so effectively, the injustice remains permanently unaddressed, um, and 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 so the uh, those who get into all these technicalities and find them rather convenient, uh, then step away or find reason to step away from the use of the term genocide and 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 talk of the of of a, of a tragedy. There's no one who has studied the subject matter would even apply the term. An accident is a tragedy. Uh, you know, an illness is a tragedy. Uh, an unfortunate death is a tragedy. But, but uh, when you're talking about the death of a million and a half people and the destruction of an entire civilization, the end of a culture, three thousand years of existence wiped away, and it isn't merely, again, as I point out, if, if the physical elimination, it's a permanent destruction. There's no way to recover the society and and the society. It's a portion of humanity that is denied its existence. And so, again, the term could hard, of tragedy would really hardly apply in this case. Well, and of course, if the uh, UN Convention was only adopted in 1948, that was, of course, after the Jewish Holocaust. But I don't think people would have any trouble calling that a genocide, even though it existed prior to the definition. Quite so. Uh, it, 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 again, uh, most of the trial trials that were held in this in, 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 in Nuremberg and others where the Nazis were eventually uh, and, and uh, justifiably accused of crimes, there were war crimes, that there were crimes against humanity. Uh, the term genocide uh, uh, plays only a tangential role, but it does prompt uh, for the international community in the post-war years to, to indeed fi- finally codify uh, the crime itself and, and, and to uh, uh, and, and do so with quite a large number of countries agreeing that uh, that needs to be adopted. Now, when it came to the enaction of this genocide, of course, the the uh, the Muslims, the Young Turks uh, in um, uh, in in Turkey, they had great control 
uh, overwhelming control over communications internally. And of course, there was a ban on any discussion of any of this sort of stuff internally. But there were a number of international observers, and I'm thinking in particular the American ambassador, who brought news of this genocide back to the world. I wonder if you could talk about the reaction of the world as the news began to come out of uh, Turkey about this, these atrocities. One of the ironic contrasts between the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide is that the Armenian Genocide was reported about almost from the very start, whereas the Nazis were more successful in, in, in hiding the facts and, and, and the details of the Holocaust began to emerge somewhat later you know, in, in that process. And in fact, the world media attention was rather minimal compared to the, to the size of the crimes that were being committed. And central to notifying the world, and in particular the United States, was indeed this gentleman by the name of Henry Morgenthau, who served as uh, U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire and stationed in Constantinople. And there is a very simple explanation as to why he was more informed than others, because the United States was a neutral party until 1917 and during World War I, and so had diplomatic representation all across the Ottoman Empire. There were consuls stationed in key cities, Jerusalem, for example, and, and, and elsewhere. And uh, these folks were eyewitnesses. They weren't simply collecting reports, but saw what was going on. Uh, and as part of their normal duty, re reported their observations to the ambassador, who then in turn sent it on uh, to the State Department in Washington. And these reports ended up on, you know, in, on the desk of President Wilson. Uh, and the U.S. government decided to actually release some of this information because uh, there was a lot of concern about what was going on and, 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 the, and wanted the world to be aware that these crimes were being, uh, were being committed. Uh, it played a very large role in, in uh, uh, at least at, at the later end uh, of the process, in generating uh, a, a mechanism in the United States to send aid to the survivors. While the news reporting had no effect in slowing down the uh, the commission of the crimes or the deportations or or anything else of the sort regrettably uh, nevertheless uh, the, res the US response was very quick as soon as the war ended because there were a few hundred thousand survivors across the uh, Syrian desert and the de delivery of US aid uh, there and elsewhere in Turkey or in the Middle East or Russia played a huge role because even the survivors would have starved and, the, and, and effectively the numbers of victims would have been even larger had not somebody like Ambassador Morgenthau and the American consuls uh, been so conscientious uh, in reporting and creating uh, awareness of, of this crime. Effectively, it's the first instance in, in world history that a genocide is, uh, is made public and it's made public by Americans. Right. Now, a lot of the countries where the Armenians fled to uh, have have recognized this as a genocide. Now, Turkey still, uh, as far as I can ascertain, adamantly denies that this uh, genocide took place. They say that they were trying to protect this a population, which seems a little odd to me, there are reports that in the marching of the lines of Armenians out into the desert, the uh, government had authorized, you know, criminal murderers and so on to attack uh, these convoys with uh, impunity. And uh, it seems that if you have a giant military protecting a domestic population, I don't think 1.5 million of them are going to end up being killed. Uh, so what is the range of opinion that is going on uh, across the world for the various actors and their own motivations for the denial or affirmation of this genocide? 
other than the Turkish government, there really is no government, perhaps Azerbaijan or, or including Azerbaijan, uh, that denies the Armenian genocide. Uh, Turkey as a state uh, wants to take no responsibility for what occurred. It was a gigantic crime. There would be considerable implications and if they took responsibility for, for the crimes. Uh, but the rest of the world recognizes the Armenian genocide. And, and as the centennial approached in uh, 2015, uh, nearly all of the European states uh, went on record formally in their parliaments or otherwise uh, extending recognition and uh, affirming the historical record. The United States actually has been uh, rather good in you know, being aware of the historical events, but has hesitated in coming out and formally recognizing the Armenian genocide. And as you have pointed out, countries such as Israel as well, uh, where they freely discuss the Armenian genocide, nobody denies it per se, but it's a question of whether they, as a government, they would formally recognize it because they have interests uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with Turkey, uh, strategic interests and other interests, and they don't want to see those interests uh, damaged because Turkey plays a critical role in, in the geopolitics of, uh, of their interests, uh, or of, of their international interests. Um, so that's the range that we're looking at uh, in terms of uh, uh, the world's awareness today, rather late, 100 year plus years uh, later, uh, where the historical record is pretty clear. It's really only one government uh, that denies, uh, whereas other countries that do not deny necessarily, not nevertheless, have reservations about formally uh, acknowledging the historical record. And is it still a crime? It was at some point. Is it still a crime in Turkey to talk about the Armenian genocide? Because, of course, in some Western countries, it's a crime to deny the, the Jewish Holocaust. And it's funny to think, uh, terrifying and tragic to think that in Turkey, uh, it, it is not the denial of a genocide that is a crime, but the affirmation of a genocide. Quite right. That law is still uh, in the books. Uh, it has not been uh, removed. Uh, technically, it is a crime to uh, raise the matter of the Armenian genocide inside inside Turkey. Uh, it you know, was being used to, to prosecute the journalists, uh, say, 10 years ago or, or more. Uh, you know, and it even resulted in the assassination of one Armenian uh, journalist in Turkey by the name of Ferran Dink, who was the most outspoken of his community on, on this matter. But he was outspoken because he was hoping that by speaking about it, the the more awareness he created inside Turkey, that, that two peoples could find some way of finding a, a path uh, towards reconciliation o over the matter. But with his assassination, uh, uh, that avenue uh, has, uh, or that pathway, it's become much more difficult and, and the process has slowed down. But at the same time, the government has probably gone, uh, itself grown a little more hesitant to uh, uh, to impose the terms of that of that article. Um, and so it's still there. The risk is there. Uh, but Turkey seems to have much bigger problems, or the people in Turkey have much bigger problems now defending their rights uh, than this one particular article at the moment, at least. Right. So let's talk about some of what happened, because when we hear of a million and a half deaths. I mean, it's incomprehensible to to process how much suffering occurred. And it is, I think, hard to process, but, but necessary to look at the sadism and cruelty 
involved in this. This was not, uh, you know, how, how they kill cattle, you know, as humanely as possible and so on. Uh, some of the reports that I've read uh, are, you know, they lined up boys in a village and gouged out their eyes. There was, of course, mass rapes and murders. There was torture. There was all of the bestial savagery of human nature that could be unleashed uh, seemed to have been uncorked. And the evil genies of our baser natures seemed to flow freely across the landscape. I could not find any single human cruelty that was not manifested in the destruction of this population. Uh, as, as witnesses observed, every conceivable crime was committed uh, during the Armenian genocide and, this, and the dimension of the brutality, the, the deep-seated hatred that drove people to, to just do the most abominable acts uh, is well attested to. Uh, and of course, uh, the the worth of the cruelties fell upon children and 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 women. Uh, and uh, in in the case of the women, the the, the range of uh, crimes uh, to which they were exposed was was almost limitless. Not only were they physically and morally abused, large no- numbers of them were were uh, kidnapped and taken into harems. Effectively, they're now prisoners uh, for. Uh, for a number of years, and some of them have stayed and remained for the rest of their lives, unable to free themselves from those circumstances. So it isn't a one-time uh, atrocity that a woman might be facing, but a, a long, extended period of terrible uh, enslavement and whatever was, uh, you know, whatever ensued thereafter. Uh, complicated in many instances by the fact that they gave birth to children and they didn't know what to make of these children. A uh, huge dilemma, especially at the end of the war, uh, when some of them uh, were able to free themselves uh, from their captors and uh, still face the question, well, now what? Uh, do we do we abandon our, our own children or do we stay here and raise a, now a, a family that I didn't really want? And do I uh, submit to Islam for the rest of my life or do I go back to my original family and my original faith uh, if I can, I, I can do so? So the consequences for women... Uh, are long-lasting, you know, and uh, to this, and curiously enough, there is now a small group of uh, people in Turkey who have come forth and identified themselves as descendants of these women, uh, and so uh, it's it's a very very complicated question as to how one uh, views and and regards this small band of uh, uh, people in Turkey who are Muslims. And yet, who who uh, identify their uh, Armenian ancestry? You know, who do they belong to? Is an interesting question. Right, right. I mean, you have the destruction of your home, your family, your culture, your religion, and uh, you have seen the most awful atrocities. And then you're taken as a sexual slave by your captors. It is hard to picture uh, a worse passage uh, in a human life. And the trauma, of course, of this uh, affects generations to come. And, you know, and I point out this scenario, this horrific scenario is playing out today. This Islamic State, the caliphate uh, that uh, one would hope is indeed in its last throes, uh, nevertheless, for these past years, uh, has just inflicted the same kind of horrors upon uh, the Yazidi population in specific and many other minorities in, in northern Iraq and, and northern Syria. Uh, they have it's it's virtually the replay of the Armenian genocide occurring with the same kind of radical thought, 
uh, the religious hatred and the abuse of populations, with specifically the enslavement of uh, uh, non-Islamic and Christian or Yazidi women. Uh, the world needs to see these patterns if they are to be avoided. Uh, it's, if, if history does indeed con continue to repeat itself, there's never going to be an end to, to genocide. Well, and of course, I think it was in the last year, 90,000 Christians were murdered largely in Islamic uh, countries. This kind of um, religious uh, cleansing, so to speak, uh, is still underway in the world. And um, the, the outcry about it remains, to me, significantly muted relative to what is occurring. Quite right, because if one, again, takes the, lo the, the long view, the Armenian genocide was only the start of the eventual expulsion of Christian populations from the entire Near East. There's, there were large numbers, millions of Christians living across that, that region in Iraq, in Syria, in Turkey, elsewhere. Uh, and today we're talking of thousands in much shrunken communities with, with uh, most of their churches and monasteries and other uh, uh, institutions, schools, and so forth, uh, devastated, destroyed, non-existent wiped off the map. Uh, the, the, the pattern of ISIS, the behavior of ISIS is just within a pattern. It's, it's, it comes at the end of a century that starts with the Armenian genocide and seems uh, to me at this point uh, about to conclude with another. Yeah, I mean, it would be uh, nice uh, if the Pope took a little bit of a break from discussing the perils of global warming and spoke out uh, more passionately about this particular topic, which would seem a little bit closer to the uh, center of Christian faith than some of the other things. Now, the Young Turks, of course, the, the leaders of the Turkish government who implemented this, were warned, of course, repeatedly by foreign powers that they would face repercussions, uh, that they would face um, trials, uh, uh, should the, uh, as the Allies did, prevail in the war. What happened to them? It's a very, very interesting story uh, of how the response was, was formulated and crafted to the, um, the leaders of, of the Turkish government implementing this genocide. What happened to them after the war? You know, the, the Allies warn them, as you point out, uh, that there would be consequences to committing more massacres and, and, and these crimes against humanity and civilization, as it was called at the time in 1915. But uh, at the end of the war, they fled the country. Uh, obviously, they had committed crimes not just against the Armenian people, but against uh, their own their own nation. Uh, and they knew that uh, the Turkish people themselves uh, would not uh, tolerate uh, their government any further and, and effectively abandon the country. Uh, many of them taking refuge in, you know, that allied state of theirs in, in, in Germany or some elsewhere in uh, Italy or, or, or Russia. But effectively, they uh, were never brought to trial. The, the principal leaders were never brought to trial. The uh, second tier leaders, some of whom were captured by, by the allies, uh, were brought to trial in domestic courts, in Turkish courts, in Constantinople, 1919-1920. Uh, 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 but again, once the uh, Turkish nationalist regime, the one led by Mustafa Kemal, uh, uh, came to power, these, uh, these trials were um, discontinued, uh, and a mere handful and less than a handful of the uh, arch-criminals were had, held responsible for the, for the crimes that they committed. Effectively, most of the uh, principal uh, uh, mass criminals uh, got away with their crimes, uh, which left uh, the Armenians uh, 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 seeking vengeance, wondering how in the world they'd ever bring these uh, 
uh, Turkish leaders uh, to justice, and uh, and they're in res- a group of men uh, resorted to hunting them down, tracking them down, finding their hiding places, uh, and ultimately uh, assassinating perhaps a half dozen of them uh, as the end of their uh, of, of bringing some sort of resolution uh, to the cry for justice for a million and a half deaths. Right. Now, one of the things that is hard to escape in looking at big picture geopolitical history and and even up to the present is if we look at a country like Germany that recognized the atrocities it had committed upon the Jews and and other populations within Germany, uh, took full ownership and and attempted to make reparations and attempted to reform and, and looked into their own heart of darkness that country, Germany, uh, is undergoing significant trials at the moment and may face significant dislocations in the future in terms of demographics and, and, and so on. I compare that fairly honorable process to the process bit, what was enacted by the Turkish government, which is to deny, obfuscate, and deny and obfuscate some more. And that country seems to be doing fairly well. They're invited into NATO. They are respected at bargaining tables. They don't seem to have that same, you know, it could be said that the, in the Germany, the self-hatred sort of went cancerous, went pathological. It metastasized intergenerationally to the point where young Germans look at their country and a lot of them feel like there's nothing positive in the history. And if you look at the nationalism and the pride that remains within Turkey, the flourishing demographics, the, the growth, the acceptance in the world community, I tell you, I mean, this is a horrible thing to say, and and I I don't know how to put it in a way that uh, is not uh, horrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is it a good idea to acknowledge your own genocides? Does it actually help you in the world stage? Is it a positive thing? It's the right thing to do, of course. But comparing Germany to Turkey, it's hard to make the case that it helps your cultural civilization in the long run if I look at these two uh, examples. You make a very, very good case, and it's actually a persuasive case. It's a disturbing one that uh, that there can be this kind of normalization in the international system when a state has committed such a huge crime and there are really no consequences for the long term uh, and no responsibility taken by a government. But as one compares the health of German society with Turkish society, the, there are contrasts that are very visible. Germany is a stable democracy. Uh, it's a flur- has a flourishing culture uh, and is not a threat to anyone uh, in Europe or any or anywhere else. Whereas Turkish society continues to be troubled and has these continuous uh, you know, turning over of government, and at this moment uh, seems to on a path where an increasingly autocratic uh, individual has seized the reins of power, and democracy uh, is at risk. Uh, while at the same time, Turkey is creates a lot of trouble for its neighbors uh, uh, and and does uh, uh, create security issues uh, for all of those countries, uh, whether Greece, Syria, uh, certainly Armenia, a small neighboring country, which keep, strangely is under blockade by Turkey. Uh, uh, and so there are differences in the behavior of their gov- of, of governments, while at the same time, I think you quite rightly point out that uh, uh, there is something quite uh, disturbing in allowing the, interna- the international community to normalize uh, a post-genocide society without bringing it to account for what had occurred uh, within its borders. 
Well, I mean, not just you say there's no negative repercussions. I think I could make the case that there have been rewards, not for the genocide, but rewards for the Turkish government. They get massive amounts of EU money. They got a seat at, at NATO. They, you know, there there is an active consideration to have them give free movement for the Turkish population in the EU. I mean, gosh, it's it's hard to, you know, if you look at it from a cold geopolitical standpoint, it's hard to make the case that one should circle back and and deal with this kind of stuff. If you look at the various material gains and losses between Turkey and Germany, and it's a horrible repercussion, and I sort of hate to even say it, but it's something that I couldn't stop thinking about when researching this issue. Well, you know, I, I think you've you've put your finger on the sorest point uh, with the Armenian people as to what's happened in the international community. It's unfortunate that it's not the it's not the issue that they that Turkey receives these rewards or or is accepted in, into international uh, organizations, but that there are no conditions. Uh, at the very least, those conditions should have been insisted upon, and it would have been better for everyone uh, because. The long-term consequence is going to be that Turkey feels entitled and licensed to act in a in a manner that is not consistent with international norms, and ultimately uh, that allows it to behave as a rogue state and and would uh, uh, continue to create problems where it shouldn't have uh, been able to do so. Uh, but we're not going to be able to solve that problem, and then and this is part of the unfortunate legacy of the Armenian of the Armenian genocide. It's got wider implications than just what happens to the what is the fate of one single people, one single minority? Uh, absolutely, and we'll get to that in a moment. I'm just going to read a little bit here, because when researching in, into this issue, again, it's hard to escape the, the prominence of the Jewish Holocaust in the minds and hearts of the world versus, to some degree, the absence, to a large degree, the absence of consciousness of the Armenian Holocaust. And one of the reasons... I think that the uh, Armenian Holocaust is less well known is it was very nearly completely successful. I mean, and, and the, the survival of the Armenian people in the region owed itself largely, I would say, to foreign intervention, to foreign rescuing, to, as you point out, food aid and so on, to a smaller degree to resistance, although that generally tended to delay rather than stop the slaughters. But I just read a little paragraph here so people can understand just how successful the Young Turks' annihilation of the Armenian population was. So we've mentioned million and a half Armenians um, murdered at the hands of the Ottoman and Turkish military and paramilitary forces, and through these atrocities which were intentionally uh, intended to eliminate the Armenians uh, in Turkey. The population of historic Armenia at the eastern extremity of Anatolia was wiped off the map. With their disappearance, an ancient people which had inhabited the Armenian highlands for 3,000 years lost its historic homeland and was forced into exile and a new diaspora. The surviving refugees spread around the world and eventually settled in some two dozen countries on all continents of the globe. Triumphant in its total annihilation of the Armenians and relieved of any obligations to the victims and survivors, the Turkish Republic adopted a policy of dismissing the charge of genocide and denying that the deportations and atrocities had constituted part of a deliberate plan to exterminate the Armenians. Now, of course, the Jews were already a diaspora without a home and had been for thousands of years prior to the creation of Israel, of course. So they had some experience on how to survive localized persecutions, which had occurred with depressing regularity throughout uh, the Middle East, throughout Europe and other places. The Armenians were scattered to the wind, were decentralized, and so few of them survived that I think that may be part of the reason why so little is known about it relative to the Jewish Holocaust. 
in part, uh, the survivor, we're talking a population uh, of half a million survivors, and as you say, uh, scattered around the world. Uh, they are stateless people. Uh, they're in foreign lands. Uh, their primary concern is simply surviving day to day, and that does indeed play a large role in being able to uh, preserve the historical narrative or, or simply being lost in, in the daily news media cycles that uh, overtake everyone's life. Uh, but I, but I, we should point out as well that in the case of the uh, Armenian genocide, it's a genocide that's, a, that's localized. It's confined to the Ottoman Empire, more or less. It does spill over into the Russian Empire a bit, uh, but it's uh, restricted to a, a distinct geography. Whereas in the case of the Holocaust, and in, 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 in the Holocaust was as part of the larger uh, Nazi crimes, uh, uh, which involved near destruction of, of Europe, uh, a lot more people were, were involved uh, as, as victims of, of Nazism. And so that whole continent, all the countries of, of that continent had an interest in uh, bringing uh, the, uh, uh, the the results and the consequences of the of the Holocaust to world attention. And so there's there's a there was a community of interest in addressing the the, the consequences of the Holocaust where there, that was entirely lacking uh, in the case of the Armenian genocide. Uh, the United States played a, some role, uh, but the rest of the world went quiet pretty quickly at the end of the war about what to do with the Armenians and what to do with the Turkish government. As we talk, of course, about Hitler and Nazism, there is a quote which shows up again and again in my readings of this, and I'll read this for people who aren't aware of it, and then we'll talk about the history of Hitler and the um, the Young Turks and some of the leaders. So Hitler, of course, um, as he starts to expand, uh, said said this. He said, I've issued the command and I'll have anyone who utters but one word of criticism executed by a firing squad that our war aim does not consist in reaching certain lines, but in the physical destruction of the enemy. Accordingly, I have I have placed my death head formation in readiness, for the present only in the east, with orders to them to send to, to death mercilessly and without compassion, men, women, and children of Polish derivation and language. Only thus shall we gain the living space which we need, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians. And that seems to me one of the great prices paid by the world's silence on the destruction of the Armenians, that it gave to some degree carte blanche to Hitler to feel that as the Young Turks to some degree got away with it, as the world ignored it or covered it up or issued blasé press releases, that he was given license to continue this uh, hellish work of genocide because people had gotten away with it before. And that, to me, seems one of the great prices that maybe, as you point out, existentially or emotionally, Turkey is still paying for today. Um, the Hitler quote uh, is critical in understanding in Hitler's attitude, as well as many other Germans, in understanding why they committed uh, the Holocaust, because so many uh, German officials, uh, whether military or um, or, uh, or otherwise, diplomatic especially, uh, uh, were aware uh, because they, Germany, Imperial Germany uh, was allied with the Ottoman Empire and had a very large representation, military representation and diplomatic representation in the Ottoman Empire. And so they observed, much as the American consuls were observing and reacting in a certain way in horror, 
uh, the German military and the German diplomatic officials were reacting in a very different way because as allies of the Ottomans, effectively, they gave them cover. This information flows into the, into Germany, and at the end of the war, uh, the uh, information does get out to the public. But in the case of Hitler himself personally, was acquainted with one of the German consuls, a fellow named Erwin Schirpner Richter, who, who uh, was stationed in the Ottoman Empire and joins him uh, and the Nazi party afterwards. And so there is this, at the very least, if not general knowledge by Hitler of what happened to the Armenians, he probably heard from his good friend uh, what exactly transpired uh, in, 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 during World War I while he was serving there and watching the extermination of the Armenians. And clearly they're drawing the lesson that you, that you point out, that there are no consequences to acting brutally against vulnerable populations. Uh, the relationship of the two was so close that uh, during the uh, Munich Putsch that uh, Hitler uh, tried to stage, uh, Schubner Richter was literally walking with him arm in arm down the street as they attempted to throw uh, the local government. And, and therein uh, uh, he fell, uh, he took a bullet, whereas Hitler ended up going to jail. And, of course, uh, subsequently wrote his book and embarked on his uh, long-term destructive political career. Uh, The knowledge within German German officialdom, whether uh, those in the diplomatic service, um, even the fellow who became foreign minister of of, uh, Germany uh, and served under Hitler, had been uh, a young secretary in the German embassy. So the extent of German official knowledge of what happened to the Armenians was massive. And clearly uh, understood for the lack of consequences. And so when another radical regime, in this case an extremely radical one, uh, such as the Nazis in in Germany take over, the the lessons from history to them are are easy and uh, and within reach. And so there were consequences to the Armenian genocide, and and there were uh, widespread, at least uh, in the first half of the 20th century. It seems the psychological principle occurs geopolitically as well as personally that that which we deny, we repeat. Now, there are, of course, people who say, well, you know, it's such a long time ago now, although, of course, it really was only, I mean, the detail end of it was uh, less than 20 years before the start of the Holocaust. So it's not that far back in time relative to the Holocaust. But um, there are people who say, oh, it's so far back in time. It's so long ago. What does it really matter now? I wonder, Dr. Adalian, if you could take the time to tell people why it matters so much and why it is important to circle back and why it is important to get people to to understand why it's so important that we recognize what happened. I mean, the people are dead now who, who made it happen, but there are still so many lessons to be learned to prevent anything like this from happening again in the future. The, the biggest problem is the crime of genocide itself. It continues to repeat itself, whether it's Cambodia or it's Darfur, um, it, it, this is this phenomenon of mass murder by an organized, systematic murder of, of, of peoples, uh, despite uh, the genocide convention, is, an, is, is, I think, very, very disturbing. And there has to be a way to bring an end to it and to understand what, why, what human behavior has been like across the 20th, 20th century into the 21st and how it starts with the Armenian genocide, I think, gives us some tools for looking at it, and this is what scholars do and, and analysts have done, and they've actually have a very good grasp of how a genocide unfolds and how a genocide can actually be prevented. Uh, uh, it, it is a preventable crime. Uh, uh, and I, I, that's 
one lesson that has to be uh, drawn from it. The other is uh, what happens in Turkey. What, what, the, what, what happens to a society that does commit a crime and chooses to ignore it? Uh, and many, uh, interestingly enough, uh, in Turkey, many intellectuals and scholars argue that the flaws in their system, uh, the, the problems with their society, their inability uh, to create a stable democratic uh, society, uh, and this continuous persecution of minorities in their in their country, constantly looking for uh, new internal enemies, is part of the legacy of the Armenian genocide. That uh, if a if a state does not purge itself of this mentality that this, once the psychology is ingrained, uh, then continuing com- coming generations continue to face the same the same problem. And lastly, the case of the Armenians, they are now a people, or part of them were people without a homeland anymore. Uh, they had lived in, a, in one place for 3,000 years. Now they're dispersed across the rest of the world. Uh, what's their destiny? What happens to people when there is no rectification, where there's no restitution, uh, no reparation, uh, no restoration? Uh, and uh, where do they go from here? There has to be a, a space where these two people can reconcile, a place where they can t- start to talking to one another. Uh, there, a, a whole lot is made that they had lived together in prior centuries uh, and, and subsequently uh, forgot how to do so. But that's not quite quite uh, historical reality as we discussed. But they have to think about the future. There is an Armenia on the map. It happens to border on Turkey. Uh, the two countries don't have a working working relations. Uh, and uh, they need to work to figure that one out. And given the, the size difference, uh, it would seem to me that Turkey's got all the uh, uh, holds all the cards in this case and could act responsibly and should act responsibly. Uh, it can take steps uh, to uh, rectify the uh, uh, the damage from the past uh, and do something about it. Uh, it's just this con- constant reluctance, perpetuating reluctance to address any dimension of the Armenian genocide is, is really uh, not helpful in any shape or form. Yeah, and I wonder if it is perhaps the Christian focus on um, free will, the Christian focus on um, taking ownership of your moral crimes and the need to seek forgiveness of those you have wronged that has had some conditioning on how uh, the West approaches its own state crimes versus uh, other cultures in other countries. But uh, I really, really want to thank you for your time, Dr. Adalian. I really wanted to remind people and, and to encourage people learn about this. It's not that long ago, and uh, the the effects are still with us. And when crimes are buried, oftentimes it is to, in some ways, perhaps even subconsciously grease the way for future crimes. This uh, These bodies need to be exhumed, so to speak, mentally. These crimes need to be examined. And as a great resource for, for learning about this, uh, Dr. Adalian's website at the Armenian National Institute website at armenian-genocide. Thank you so much for, of course, the immense amount of time and labor that you have done yourself and directed and others in bringing these materials to a central place. Uh, I wish you the very best in continuing to get the word out there. And I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate you bringing attention to the subject matter.